Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, the Communications Director for the Foundation. The event we have for you right now is one of my favorite events so far. It's with Drew Goddard and John August, two fantastic writers and two brilliant storytellers. Drew is the writer of The Martian, which has held the number one spot in the box office for pretty much all of October. He's also the writer behind World War Z, Cloverfield, The Cabin in the Woods, and he's worked in the writer's rooms of some mind-blowing TV shows, including Lost, Alias, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. John August has also written a host of spectacular films, including Frankenweenie, Corpse Bride, Big Fish, and the Charlie's Angels movies. He's also the host of the tremendously popular Script Notes podcast. If you're a writer and not listening to Script Notes, I don't know what you're doing after this podcast. You better go check it out. What made the site special was the easy rapport these two writers had, which you'll hear in a moment. Like much of his work, Drew is brilliant in weaving together humor and heartbreak, and you'll hear a bit about where that comes from. There's also some practical advice, as always, for aspiring writers looking to work in TV. Okay, I'll stop talking now. Don't forget to check out our upcoming events at wgfoundation.org. So without further ado, I give you Writers on Writing with Drew Goddard and John August. I'm required to say hello and welcome at the start of every uh, gathering. Uh, my name's John August. I, I'm, a, I'm a strained metaphor, apparently. But I'm, it's my huge pleasure to welcome our guest tonight, Drew Goddard. Drew Goddard, come on out here. Hello and welcome. Hello, yeah. Um, so for people who are listening at home, they might not realize you're incredibly tall. I'm getting up there, yeah. Um, so I was looking through, uh, I was trying, do you have, do you have my Is this on? Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I was looking through on IMDb, which is my, my thing to do before I sit down with somebody, and I saw pictures from Cabin in the Woods, and you're standing next to Chris Hemsworth, and you tower over Chris Hemsworth. Thank you, thank you. Um, so for, That's for, true. For people at home, just know that I'm talking to a, a literal giant in addition to a... Wait, is it fair to say I dwarf Thor? Is that you what do, you're saying? You, yeah. you do, yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. So when, when Joss Whedon was like casting Thor, he must be like, sure. no, but can't you be taller? And, and you said, no, he, he, that guy can't be taller. He was in the movie. We, we Correct. Made. He's a, a, a wee gentleman. No, yeah. He's, he's wee. <laughs> it, it's movie magic that make yeah. him seem at all, you know, like a, a hero. Sorry to burst the bubble, everyone. Uh, Drew Goddard, um, how has your year been so far? Eh. <laughs> how, look, the better question is how has the, have the last 40 years, frankly, been, but the last or 20 years in Los Angeles, it's been great. It's great being me. Right, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's, 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 go, let's get to 40 years. Uh, we, got, we got a little time here. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, we're going to skip over um, a lot of the early years because okay. I suspect you were born. Yep. I suspect you had... I suspect you have parents. I do, yeah. Right? And um, where were you born, and where were you raised? New, lovely New Mexico. Where in New Mexico? Los Alamos, sort of up in the mountains of New Mexico. So I've been to Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, what? Uh, so randomly, uh, friends of uh, my family's moved there after working in Bell Labs, and they worked in sort of the... the um, the, the Los Alamos Labs. And so yep. I got to see that's where the first nuclear bomb was built. It has the largest Dewey Decimal Library in the world. Yep. That's um, correct. Yeah. And so I, you read all those books growing up, and that's how. Sure. That's, that's, that's the key. <laughs> it's the only thing to do. Uh, clear taxonomy is really the goal <laughs> of any good screenwriter. Um, you grew up there, and were you writing from an early age? What was your um, origin in that way? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading from an early age. I don't know that I understood that I was writing, if that makes sense. I loved books right away, you know? And um, uh, that's all I can, I mean, there's nothing to do in Los Alamos, New Mexico. There's nothing to do. It is just, it's a company town. It's a, it's a town of scientists. And it's nestled, I mean, the whole point of it, it they, they built the atomic bomb there. Uh, and so they designed a town that they could hide from the world is essentially what happened. And so there's one, there's one road in and there's one road out. And it's just hidden in the mountains. And I'm going to give you two quick facts about Los Alamos that I, I continue to find fascinating. Um, and that's one of the highest IQs per capita in the, wor in, in, the, in, in the world, maybe the world, but I know the nation at least, and one of the highest concentrations of churches per capita, which those two, those two stats tend to go the opposite direction. Um, and, and the reason is because all the scientists have some, I, mean, I think the reason is, all the scientists have so much guilt about making weapons. Yeah. And that it's this, so it's this weird mixture of, of intelligence and pained guilt. It was also yeah. a, 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 a tremendous <laughs> influx of immigrants um, at a very specific time. So it's, it's just a really weird American place yes. to, to, to exist. So you grew up there. You're reading a bunch of books. Were there like series of books? Like what were the books that sort of inspired you to um, to write? Were there, were there any like series you went back to, or any single books that became your sort of touchstones for writing? Yeah, I mean. Uh, Douglas Adams was a huge influence, I'd have to say. Like, but honestly, I read everything. Yeah. Like, I, I, I read every Sweet Valley High book. <laughs> I, I read anything. We had one bookstore. It was called Our Books, and you know, I would just read whatever they had. Mm -hmm. And so they would just, I would just take because there were so few. It sounds absurd, but it was this small town yeah. that didn't. We didn't have a music store. I remember we yeah. couldn't find. Like, we had to drive to Albuquerque to get stuff like that. And so I just read what I get my hands on. So, but I remember the things that popped early were. Douglas Adams, for sure. I mean, just, you know, relentlessly, religiously reading Hitchhikers over and over and over. Um, and then as I got older, it was, you know, you get to the Stephen King, the sort of phase that I think a lot a lot of people go through. Um, I'm trying to think. And, you know, mostly the, the, the trials and tribulations of Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield. Yeah, yeah. which is crucial. Sure. Yeah, course, yeah, you have to know what's going to happen in the next book. Yeah, <laughs> And let's talk about your TV and your movie education at this point. And yes. so when did, were you aware that there was uh, television that was being written, or that, that, that movies were good? Or did you ever even like movies? Yeah, no. It, the movies sort of came along as well. Um, it was sort of parallel tracks. Uh, certainly, I mean, look, I, the earliest memory I, I have is of Empire Strikes Back. You know, I was five, and you walk out and you go, wait, you can end a movie like that? Like, I, my brain exploded. I didn't understand that that you could tell a story and, and then be withheld the information. And I, I can remember walking with my dad being like, how are we going to get Han back, Dad? Like, how's that going to happen? Things cannot be left unresolved. Absolutely. And then yeah. two years later, my dad took me to see Blade Runner. And it was like, that. that's the one-two punch. When I look back, mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of the, the origin story mm -hmm. of myself. Like, those two movies yeah. uh, with my father. I mean, that's yeah. a part of it, is, is, the, is doing those two things together and understanding, like, wait... Han Solo is now shooting naked women in the back. Like, wait, what's yeah. what's happening, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> Why did you bring me to this? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. And, so uh, actors can play more than one role. Right. Like it's just way, way over yeah. your head. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and was your movie education at the theaters? Was it on uh, home video? Like, wh wh where did you see movies, and and how did you sort of build up your knowledge of what movies were? Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it, there was the theater, so you would go sort of, and that was the one thing to do. So that was the one sort of social event. Um, and continues to be when I go home. Um, 
and then once VCRs came out, I know I'm dating myself, but that was a big deal. Like that was you would you would rent the VCR and you would ride your bike with with your backpack with the VCR in the backpack, <laughs> and then you would get there was you know eight. I you were renting a VCR. That, that's actually, oh, yeah. that's actually a, a, a novel kind of thing. So you because that, that early stage is where it wasn't a thing you would actually own yourself. No, no, no. Yeah, it was. Uh, you'd rent the VCR and there, that would be a weekend. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like that's oh, what are we doing? We'll, we'll, we'll rent the VCR and then yeah. uh, that would be what you do and that that went on far longer than when like most kids had a VCR but yeah. I, my dad was very cheap that's great <laughs> that, that's good um, when were you aware that uh, movies and television were written because I was thinking about this myself and I have a very specific movie which yeah. I recognize well, how about for you uh, hilariously late right. I'm going to say that first because yeah, it's hilariously late too so yeah. we'll see so and it wasn't it was not in so it wasn't until college mm -hmm. because um, and it's hard for people to understand but I you know you, it would never occur to me that that these things had screenwriters. It just it never occurred. Like it, it was such a foreign concept that this could be a job. I mean, I guess I knew that they were written, but I didn't understand that it was a job and that uh, and that it was a singular job. And I remember it was I was in, I got to college right around when the X Files hit, and I was I was home one night on a Friday night, and this episode called Jose Chung's From Outer Space drops, and it. It changed my life. Like it, it really did. Like I saw that episode and went, "Wait, what? What the hell just happened?" It, it's this. I mean, if you have not seen Jose Chung's from Outer Space, I let, let's all go watch it right now. It really did. It was like a bomb went off for me because it's it's so aggressive and it's so funny and it's so sad. And when and I was like, "Who is Darren Morgan?" I just had to know who this guy was that wrote this, and. And it changed everything. Like it really, I think it, I, that was the sort of wave when TV started speaking my language, or you know, or I started getting influenced by what I saw. I mean, I was always, I always loved television, but it wasn't until the X Files where I felt like, oh wait a minute, I, I, I'm, I'm noticing the same references for what I grew up with. I'm noticing that if that makes sense. Yeah, suddenly television was being written for you, and you yes. weren't aware that. It's being written, and that's it, a strange. Yeah. So I share your like late college, like suddenly, like oh, someone had to write that, and it, it seems so crazy for everybody who's younger than we are, because like well, the internet. But uh, uh, for us, it's like it, there wasn't that source of easy access to information. So we had Premiere Magazine. I remember yes. reading all that, but I didn't really <laughs> fundamentally understand that TV and movies were written quite the way that they were written. And so I remember watching. Um, uh, War of the Roses, and so we we rented it. We rented, the, we didn't rent the DVR. But we rented the, the VHS tape, and I'm watching it and playing it back, and like starting to write down all the dialogue. Like, oh, everything they're saying must have been written down, sort of like in a play. And I just fundamentally didn't understand there was such a, such a thing as a screenplay. Right. And then my TV equivalent experience was watching an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and like, wow, I, I'm trying to remember. It was it was one of the sort of more generic sort of like you know we encounter an alien civilization and they're not what we think they are going to be sort of like every anyone yeah anyone? Anyone? No. You, know, you know the one about the alien civilization that they that they, they meet and uh, uh yeah yeah kind of I think I think um I think what it was was that like Riker and Picard had different perspectives on what they oh, should do well, that, was that, that was a good one that episode that was a good one so uh um, so I, I, anyway, I remember I, so I recorded that one and I, I started just like transcribing it and this again it seems crazy in the age of the internet but like I like oh well this was how it was I was trying to figure out like what the scene description would be and so yeah. it wasn't what was the first screenplay you read then I, I, I'm going to circle back because I'm going to make myself look even worse what's the first thing I, tra I remember transcribing from the VHS the song that 
there's wrapped in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> and, now, and now we have the Martian. So it's <laughs> just a clear line. Mark, I love how you got in there. It's all become clear. Um, uh, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> oh, what first week you read? Uh, oh, god boy. It was, oh, no, I know what it was. Um, so a movie was, sh I, I went home from college, because again, yeah. we couldn't get screenplays. No. Like, there was not the internet. There was I not mean, the internet. There was the internet. It wasn't selling screenplays. Screen? Yes, yeah. It wasn't. So, um, uh, I went home from college after my second year. Mm -hmm. I found out that um, John Carpenter was shooting vampires in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I was obsessed with, I continue to be obsessed with John Carpenter. This was, this was, so I called, I just cold called and said, can I please have a job? Can I please have a job? Can I please have a job? They said, no, but there's a, CB, there's a CBS movie of the week called Scattering Dad where, where Olympia Dukakis, they didn't tell me this, but I'm telling you. Um, uh, Olympia Dukakis is scattering Andy Griffin's ashes. Um, oh. And, and they need a PA. Would you like to do that? And I said, absolutely. Um, and I took that job then went to the photocopy when I got to the building and stole the vampire screenplay. Great. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what that, and that was the first screenplay I ever read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, a really, it's a really good screenplay, by the way. Right. The vampire screenplay yeah. is much better than the movie itself. Yeah. Uh, and how did Scattering Dead turn out? That's really the It's a masterpiece. Question. It is. Yeah. It is so good. Did yeah. Olympia Caucus do a good job of scattering those, those ashes? She did. It was, it was difficult because, obviously, there was a lot going on. A lot of motion. Yeah. Uh, here's what, every single job yeah. that I have had since then can be traced back to that. So yeah. every single job can be traced back to. You're, you're setting up, you're setting up a dare here. So so to, in, in what ways? Like what the the things the lessons you learn? No, I mean directly. Oh, the caucus is the seminal cause. Without question. Okay. With, no, no, because um, when I so then I went back to college for a year. When uh, and then or two years and. I don't know, my, my dates are wrong, but um, the point is... You learned so much in college. Yeah. I did. I, yeah. I loved college. Okay. It was great. Where did you go to college? Uh, Boulder. Oh, that's when we have the Boulder. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. yes. from Boulder, Colorado. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, so you read this screenplay while you were still in high school or while you were no, in college? college. Okay. So it was college, yes. So you read this screenplay. You're like, well, this is really good. Did you think at that point, like, I could probably write a screenplay? Had that occurred to you? I, I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a, an author. Mm -hmm. Like, I would think I was going to want to study real fiction. Yeah. yeah. But, but that was only because that's... Mm -hmm. That's the, the only writing I understood. Yeah. And, and then I got to college, and, and then I saw this, and I, you know, you started opening up. Were Matt and Trey there at that point? Or they were. Like, so they were seniors when I was a freshman, mm -hmm. and I desperately tried to be an extra in Cannibal, yeah. and they never called me back. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, I'm really bitter about it. Yeah, your, yeah. Arc, your arc could have been completely different. You could have been one of those sort of That's like true. Know, bit player. Yeah. 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 All right. Well. So there's a sliding doors uh, where Drew Goddard takes that. Okay, thank you. The one uh, person who's seen sliding doors. Yeah, yeah. We love sliding doors. <laughs> Don't get by the train. The, the lessons we learned. Um, when you so you read the screenplay, you this idea occurs to you like, oh, screenplays are written. Uh, but when did you actually start to write your first screenplay? I don't think it was till I came out here, okay. actually. Cause I, I, so why did you come out here, then? Because I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really see the difference. Yeah. I still don't. I mean, I still sort of get you a know, prose, screenplay, television. Like, it's all, it's all writing, right? Yeah. I thought, I need a day job. Bullshit. It's all bullshit, yeah, right, John? Yeah, yeah. We're going to get real tonight, guys. <laughs> no, um, I knew I needed a day job. And I knew, like, okay, writers get paid out in California. Mm -hmm. I need a job. Yeah, I remember those people that worked in the office at Scattering Dad. I bet if I dr if I drive out from college to California, I yeah. can call those people and see if they have any jobs. Yeah, 
and that's what happened. I just got in the car and drove, and they said, and I called and said, do you, do you have any jobs? And they said, yeah, can you be here right now? And I said, sure. Great. And I showed up, um, and they were staffing for some t CBS movie of the week, mm -hmm. uh, another one, because they, they were and how that would turn out? Another, another masterpiece. Right. No. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should explain what a uh, movie of the week was. Uh, <laughs> movie of the week was a thing that networks used to do where they shoot these, these low-budget movies. Yeah. Starring Olympic Dukakis. So, so, uh, so a, you, were P, you were PA on this again? Were you in office, or were you on set? What you, were you doing? Here, wait. Uh, Sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, this I'm, has I'm, nothing to do with writing, but I do want to tell you about the time I uh, almost bled to death on Olympia Dukakis's porch. So, because <laughs> it's funny, I want to get this on the record. We're recording this, right? Okay. So I was a PA uh, for her, and they give you the list of her, essentially her writer, right? Um, and in in my mind, because I've never done anything like this before, I think if she does not get everything on this list the moment she lands. This movie's over. I'm fired. Hollywood is going to burn. So I, and one of the things was this ab roller, that but it couldn't be the ab master, and it very said very specifically not the ab master, the ab roller, and the only place to find it was like in Albuquerque. So I had to drive two hours to get the ab roller. I'm I'm so stressed. I cannot tell you how stressed I am that this is going to happen. I get it. I race back. In my mind, she's um, waiting behind that door. Where the hell is my ab roller? And I'm racing up the driveway with it, and both nostrils start bleeding, to like to a hilarious degree. Like both, and I realize looking back, like this is—it's all psychosomatic. We're going to get back to this as we discuss writing. Um, but <laughs> I just, just dumping, like dumping blood, and in my mind, she is going, "Where the fuck is my ab roller?" And so I don't know what to do because I'm like this. I'm this. Yeah. this, this I mean, you're woman. bleeding, but you have an ab roller. So, so. I kept, and I'm holding it, and it's just dumping. And then, so then I set the ab roller down, and I put it down, and I just bleed into my hands. I remember this so clearly. And I remember thinking, I remember staring up at the beautiful New Mexican sky and thinking, oh, this is it. This is how I die tonight. This is it. I don't, you know, my obituary is going to say, died trying. Um, and, I don't, and then it stopped. I finally get it to stop, and, but I'm like, I'm covered in blood. And then I'm like, well, what do I, how do, how do I solve this problem? Um, because, she, and again, she's right there yeah. go thinking this, but I can't ring the doorbell and say, ma'am, I'm, I'm Drew. I've never met her. Um, big, big fan of your work. And um, had a bit of a mishap. No, I, you know, I, I don't So I just picture how this scene played out from across the street where, where somebody watching this guy covered in blood, carrying an apple, running up to Olympia Dukakis, putting it on the ground, ringing the doorbell, and just running. Yeah. Just, <laughs> sorry, it's a bit of an aside. But it's an important aside because that, I look back now and I go, well, th th that was ridiculous, but that was the, the PA quality that just said, I'm going to do this crap that nobody wants to do yeah. is what led to every other job. So then I got the job. I came out here, yeah. took the PA job. Those people, you know, movie, the thing that was great about movies of the week was that um, they just kept going down. Yeah. Like they just, and I kept working on these shows. They kept going under. What happens, what's nice about that is all of those writers and all of those, you know, everyone who works on it scatters like dandelions. They just scatter. And then they all, and you meet those people and they go to other things. And so after that, uh, some of those people went to David Kelly, and this was when David Kelly was doing The Practice and Ally McBeal. Yeah, he was actually writing all those 
show simultaneously. I don't, I don't, I've never understood that. I can explain it to you because I was there. Okay, so, so yeah. tell us. So was he, was he, was he bleeding onto his abro? Or is that how he does it? I mean, it's just a, a special. It, it, like all right, he had, he had his process. This was the first time I got to see a writer have a particular process, if that makes sense. And I was in, I, so I, I was in the office there, and he didn't deal with anything other than writing, which I loved. Like I just watched this guy, and he would, he loved his Jamba Juice, and so I'd go get the Jamba Juice order. It was very specific, and he had a very specific number two pencils and his uh, legal pads, and he would just write a script. He would get a new legal pad for each script, and then just write, and he would crank it out. Like he was doing Allie McBeal and The Practice and Snoops simultaneously writing almost every episode, or definitely rewriting every one of them, and so I just got to watch this. I just got to watch this guy do this, and that, I mean, uh, that was, I look back. When you say watch, were you just like standing in the corner peering at him? Yeah. I, it couldn't have been more creepy. Yeah. Like, I couldn't, like, I, this you is... You were like delivering the drama juice and like then peering over his shoulder to see like what he'd done? I, 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 All of it, yeah, yes, yeah. because here's the thing, it was so foreign to me. This yeah. business was so foreign to me. Like, I, I really, I look back, I was so naive. I really, and but but I was so excited because of that, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. it was so fun, but I, you know, people would get so upset, like, oh, we got to work till eight. I'm like, we get to work till eight. <laughs> like, this is great. Drew, do you want to drive this script up to Mulholland? Yes, I've never seen Mulholland before. Like, I've never, <laughs> this sounds great. I love this. And so. It's like you're in a giant improv class. You're just saying yes and continuously. It's like, oh, well, yes, I will. And I'll, I'll, I'll stay up all night and I'll do these other things too. It's true. And, and, it and was, so this age, you're like 22, 23. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you get the age where it's like, whatever, you can stay up all night if you need to. You can do whatever you need to. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't know anyone. Like, yeah. I came out here and like, so all of the other 22-year-olds and 23-year-olds, they're all cool and... Yeah. There was the, uh, what was the place, well, whatever. Um, there was a place, <laughs> place where everyone got martinis, and I, I was yeah. like, I've never even had a martini. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, like, I can't, I definitely can't afford one. Yeah. So, uh, like, instead, I'm just going to stay here and ask every writer, what do you need? And that was the, that was the most important part, because all of them needed to know how to print. And I was good with computers. Yeah. Like, that was it. <laughs> that, that is the secret. That is the secret to my career, <laughs> is that just know how to print, because it yeah. just continues to this day. You're the printing whisperer. Yeah. Yeah. Just figure out computers because every writer it, that only needs to know how to print when they're desperate because mm -hmm. yes. they don't they don't care when they're not desperate yeah. when they're desperate you are their lifesaver like you can come in and show up and be helpful and they're very happy to see you i wonder though if if you were dating yourself on that advice because i feel like we don't print nearly as much as I'm we did sure that's so true. I, I think being able to connect to wi-fi or dangerous or those, those sort of situations might would be good for like the, the, the modern pa i I'm, mean like absolutely. how do you get on this wi-fi i can talk you through how to get on this wi-fi whatever the process is for delivering a script yes it could be be getting beamed into someone's skull from someone else's skull. Yeah. Know how that works. Yeah. Because it's going to go down when they have to deliver a script, and that writer is going to lose their mind. Yeah. That writer is going to absolutely lose their mind, and you can be there to be helpful. One thing that was also different historically, as you and I were both coming up, is that scripts were not only printed, but they actually had to be physically delivered from place to place. Uh, it's worse than that. Um, so it also had to be, so you, you couldn't watermark. So here's what I had to do. I remember... Um, each person's, to, in order to watermark, mm -hmm. you had to get an, uh, a, an overlay of each person's name. You would tape it to the copier mm -hmm. so that the, each script would get copied one by, each page would get copied one by one. So like a transparency, like you put, do it. There was a transparency. Oh my God. And then each script would be one. That was how you would watermark things. It took forever. So, it, yeah. so in order to do a script, but it, this was great for me because I would just have to sit there and, and, and then you learn every department head's name because yeah. I'm doing every person's name. I'm doing, you know, I'm learning each person and then have to go take it to that person. I would 
I would hate it when writers would give me revisions. Yeah. Like, I still, to this day, I hate doing revisions because of yeah. this, because the idea that, oh, wait, you just now have 10 pages and I have six hours yeah, to put this all out. Yeah. I, I made an app that made your, your job absolutely. I don't use it. No. No. I make all my PAs because I'm so bitter about David Weaver's over there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm like, you're going back to transparency, my friend. Yeah. Because I need you to learn. Old school. That's, that's a good choice. So uh, at this point, you are working as a PA. You are staying, you're driving to Mulholland. You are bleeding on Oblito Hux's driveway, uh, which, by the way, would be a great cold open for a Six Feet Under it episode. It's like, you know, it's just like those random things. And then it's high. Yeah. Drew got it. 1975 to 1992. Yeah. Well, well done. Oblito Hux opens the door. Just confused. Like, hard cut to title. Yeah, great. Um, so you have, uh, you've been working as a PA. When do you start writing a script to hopefully uh, get a job? What, what was the, the process and what was the script? What were the... The moments of inflection here. I was still very. I, I think I have a counter counter uh, authority streak, or I didn't want to do because I saw all of my peers being like, "Oh, what's your spec? What's your spec? Yeah, yeah. What's going on?" I was like, "Fuck you! I'm going to be an author. That's what's going to happen." And so I was like working on my book and, and and sort of aggressively trumpeting that to everyone else in the office. Like, I don't care. And then. Um, <laughs> And then they needed a writer's assistant. They said, Joe, do you want to come be the writer's assistant? I said, sure. And then... This was on The Practice? This was on a show called Snoops. The third... Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. The third... The, the, of the holy... The most, for, Kelly, the most forgotten Tom, of the three, yeah. 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 This would be the Holy Spirit, yeah. the one that no one cares about. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um... Th this was Snoops, and... Uh, uh, I worked for a woman named Molly Newman, um, and she was wonderful, and she just sort of said, uh, come be my assistant, come, and and I'll show you what to do. And she sort of said, listen, you need to write a script. Because I, I, I like you. I want to staff you. Uh, and I want to get my own show. But I can't go with nothing. Yeah. You actually have to give me a script. So please, will you just do that? And I kept saying no. And then... <laughs> <laughs> So, a bold choice for a PA. I didn't know. Yeah, I just didn't know. That was the other thing. I just didn't know. And 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 I I was reading some interview with Danny Boyle, and he said, um, when you're young, your naivete is such a weapon, and it's really true. It's really true that you just don't know. But the things that were that I that you do know is like just work hard. I kept looking around and going. I see a lot of people talking about trying to get jobs and worrying about trying to get an agent, and they're not writing. I see this over and over and over, and I'll, I'll just write. I'll just do that. And then, and then what happened is they got this other pilot picked up, Molly and Howard Gordon, and and they asked me to sort of be the writer's assistant and to read all the submissions for that. And I started reading all. So in, in a course of three weeks, I think I had to read 200 scripts because it just gets dumped on you. And 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 that was the single best thing that happened to me because you start looking at it, and I had and, and I had to make an Excel document talking about each of these scripts, and. I, it's like doing coverage, but a very quick very, version of coverage. It's yeah. very quick yeah. coverage, which is great, because too much coverage... It burns a hole in your brain. Without it, it, question. Yeah. But quick coverage is very much like, okay, I don't like this. And of the 200, I think I, I didn't like 195 of them. Like, it's true. But five of them, uh, you looked at and went, okay, these are standing out. Why? And were you reading uh, these uh, submissions? Were these usually spec episodes of existing shows, or were they originals? What yeah, so at the yeah. time, uh, Sopranos had just come on. So Sopranos was the big spec. I'm trying to think what were the big specs back then. Sopranos and NYPD Blue, I feel uh, like. I think I was staffing a show at the same time, and yeah. those were the ones. Yeah. Those were the ones. And that was the other thing I learned, which is don't write the same thing everyone else is writing, because it just, it, it just bleeds together, and then and you get bored, you know? And so so then I went, okay, how do I do this? I think I can do that. I, I now I'm, I'm starting to understand how I can do this, and I thought, all right, I got to write. At the time, you really did have to write a spec. Um, and... 
and so I thought I noticed that you want to feel fresh. So write whatever has just come on the air. Whatever just come on the air, like don't. And the six feet under pilot aired, and I went, oh, I can write this, and I started it that night, and I and that was the first thing I sort of wrote, um, which was which was nice uh, because. I worked earlier, and I think I wrote, no, I tried, I wrote a pilot at the same time. So I wrote a pilot before that, and then they said, you also need a spec. So I said, okay, and, and wrote that. And it was nice, at the same, and then at that time, Molly got a job on a, a development deal, on the development floor, and so I started just meeting writers. Because what happened is all these writers just had development deals, and they were all just hanging out. And again, none of them knew how to print. So nobody knew how to print, <laughs> and I was the only guy that knew how to print. So I'd go, like, it was Levitan, Steve Levitan was there. Like, it was, I met so many of my friends, and some of them are here tonight, they, you know, because of these guys that were, they were all assistants on the same floor. And, um, and, and we were just meeting writers, and I organ, here's the other thing. Uh, Try to be fun. That's the other thing to do. I organized the Survi Survivor had just come on the air, and I realized I like gambling, so we could just gamble on it. So I said, let's just come up with a gambling pool. And all of the writers saw and went, I'd like to be in that gambling pool. Um, and so I finished my 1600 uh, script, and Marty Knoxon, who was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was my favorite show at the time, heard about our Survivor pool and wanted to play so bad that um, she came in and joined our uh, pool. And, and that's the other thing. You, you learn, don't be pushy about it. Yeah. Don't be pushy about it. Just just actually try to make these writers' lives better, and they'll be appreciative. Like that, So I was never like, read my script, I want a job. I was just like, come join our fun survivor game. And she saw that and went, okay, do you have a script, by the way? Like After after about six months, I said, yeah, here it is. And then she took me um, to lunch and said, I want you to come uh, write on our show. And I, you know. And you said no, because that's, that's <laughs> the idea. Was like, no. I, I almost wrecked my car. Yeah. I was shaking. And then it had simultaneously been submitted to David Greenwald, who was at Angel, and he read it not knowing that Marty got it. So I, Marty told me that, and I went back to my office and thought, oh, my life's changing, you know? Like, uh, let's skip over one thing. It had been submitted, too. So at this point, you had an agent. No. Uh, Molly, right. uh, who okay. uh, was my boss, said, okay, if you're going to give it to Marty, let me send it to the mutant enemy yeah, coverage family, director. Yes, right. And that, so it got slipped to Greenwald, but he just read a stack in his script, you know, there was, so he didn't know where it came from. So he called and he goes, he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful man. And he's very, um, he's like, I don't know who you are. Uh, what's the Christopher Reeve uh, play where the older writer wants to kill the younger writer and just <laughs> put his name on the script? Because who are you? Where did this come from? Will you come write for Angel? And I said, uh, Marty just asked me. He's like, Marty, want you to hang on and just hangs up on me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I was in this lucky position where they, my, and again, these were my two favorite shows. Like I, this was the dream and um, they both started arguing over who got the, yeah. Who, um, I want to pause for a second just to point out some things that have been common threads of like almost every writer I've talked to who's sort of gone through these things. And you did them in sort of a different order, but you did the same kind of things, which is you read a ton of scripts. And you, you delayed a bit sort of in reading all those things. But you read a lot and you sort of developed a taste. And you sort of got to recognize what was working, what was not working on the page, you know, what things made, things really stood out. So by the time you actually wrote your script, you were trying to write not just an okay script, you were trying to beat all the best things you'd read before. That's fantastic. That's right. You were developing a group of peers um, who you were helping out and not, without even necessarily the expectation that they were going to help you back out. And so you were the guy who helped them print, but you were also the guy who was, you know, setting up fun social things to do. That's right. Um, you were also the guy who was 
just working harder. Well, that that's the key. That, in fact, of all the things, this is the most important because I remember. So I would be a PA, and you'd, I'd start my day at six a.m. Mm-hmm. And I was living in this tiny, essentially a studio apartment under some stairs in West Hollywood. And I couldn't write there. Mm-hmm. Like, and, but Molly had an office. So I would work from 6 a.m. till 6, you know, like 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then Molly said, okay, I'm going home. You can use my office. Mm-hmm. So then I would drive to her, to her other office because we were doing a pilot on the sound stages. And I would drive to her office and then start my writing day at 8.30 p.m. And I remember so specifically there was this old woman security guard that would, that would sit at the desk. And she would just see me come in over and over you know, consistently at like 9 p.m. and start writing. And after about three weeks of doing this, she just looks at me, and I'll never forget this. She looks at me and goes, oh, you're going to make all the money. And (laughs) she was right. And I remember thinking, she she said it's so wise. It was so wonderful. I was like, but I realized she does know, like, like that if you just if you no one else is doing this yeah. i looked at my peers and went they're not doing this they're all going out yeah my like part of this was just my own introversion and social awkwardness kept me in there that's true but so try to do that writers um but well, one thing i'll point out though is that in other careers it's really obvious to see who's working really hard yes. and with writing it's, it's invisible because you're going off someplace and sitting by yourself yes. and so you don't see how hard a person is actually working that's right and um and so she was seeing how hard you were working but other people might not necessarily see that that's right i remember being on set for the first time um, uh, with, uh, I remember watching Spielberg direct something, and I was like, oh, he's working really hard. And it's like, I can work really hard. It was, it was a, both a sobering moment and also a really encouraging moment to see like, oh, you know what, it's just a tremendous amount of work, Yes. and I'm willing to do a tremendous amount of work. And most people don't want to. Yeah. That's the other thing. So you can differentiate yourself right away. Yeah. Because most people just don't want to do a tremendous. I look. I don't want to do. No. I don't. And not anymore. No. Enough. You know, when you're younger, you can really differentiate yourself because people don't want to. So you are now being in a bidding war between uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. I know you got. You went with Marty to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was in the fifth season. Seventh. Seventh season. Right at the end. Yeah. Right. And so this is post Buffy shagging. Uh, all the time. That, that really dark sixth season was the one where... Yeah, but she was still shagging a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my daughter hasn't started watching it yet, but I'm trying to figure out how we're going to get through that, that sixth season because yeah. it gets dark. How old? She's only 10 now. Yeah, I'll give yeah. it a couple more years. Yeah, I'll give it a couple more years. Um, so you enter in that episode, and you enter in that season, and you uh, write with Jane Espenson, one of my very favorite episodes, Conversations with the Dead People. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. It's, just, it's great. Um, Conversations with the Dead People is... is it's not quite a bottle episode, but it's a very l- limited episode in yeah. a sense. It's, so can you talk to me about, A, the process of suddenly working on a staffed TV show, and one that's so well established, and then how do you, how do you stand out but also fit in? How, how do you work your way into a show that's already running? Yeah, and, and this is, it, so that wasn't actually my first. So my first was this episode called Selfless. Um, and... And but you know the way it sort of works, and most staffs tend to work this way, is you sort of go in order of seniority. So episode of if this new season starting, episode one tends to go to the executive producer, co-executive producers too, and that's what happens. So it sort of goes down the list, and then what happens is Joss also has Firefly and Angel and. 
Buffy all on the air. So a lot of the writers start pulling double duty. Yeah. And so they, they, and then all the other writers start having babies. So, yeah. just, so Marty goes on maternity leave, Doug Petrie goes on maternity leave, or paternity leave, and it just starts happening. It gets whittled down, yeah. right? And, um, so the, and then when it comes time to break my episode, everyone is gone. Yeah. So everyone is either on a different show um, or writing their own episode on this you're one. You're just in this conference room by yourself without so a whiteboard. And Joss is directing the train job, which was a uh, the, one of the early... Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And he calls the room, and it's on speakerphone. I don't know why I put it on speakerphone, because I, I sort of... He's like, so are you guys starting to talk about episode five? And I said, well, I mean, I'm starting to think about episode five. And uh, by the way, at this point, Joss has not read me. Because wow. he is not, so this is terrifying. And he's acting like he has, but I know that, that he is not. Because he's, he's just trusted that Marty and David wanted to hire me. So, But th that's scary because I know that he hasn't. And he is, at the time, my idol. Like, I'm really scared about it. Um, and I, you know, but but he says, okay, so are you there? So you're, you're, you guys are coming up with ideas? And I said, well, I am. And he said, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, it's, it's only me. He's like, what, what do you mean? And he, I'm like, no, no, there's no one else here. It's, it's, it's just me sitting in the room. And he goes, well, that's ridiculous. Why don't you just come to set? Just come to set right now, and, um, and we'll just think of it together. So then he, they, I drive out to set while he's directing the train job and just sit next to him, um, and, he, and we start breaking the episode. And, and, and what happens there is the same thing, which is I'm, I, you know, I'm the only one that is happy to stay because everyone else has kids and they don't like but i'm like yeah let's hang out on the train job and i'll stay here till four in the morning and i will sit here and come up with ideas while you're spending four hours actually doing your job directing and then in the between times i'll, I'll pitch ideas to you and that's and that and we we just hit it off like that i think we, look when i look back that was exactly what he needed at that time in his life because he was doing so much. He needed someone that will just hang out yeah. and just work there and, and it doesn't worry about, because I didn't have a family. Like I didn't no. have also, you, didn't have, you didn't have a title. You didn't Correct. have evidence that you could actually necessarily do this, but he just, you know, you did the job because you were the person there. That's right. Yeah, so and you were delivering the script to Mulholland. That's right, yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. And then, and then so I, we did selfless and it really... I think because we were working on it so closely, it was really a fastball to sort of what mm -hmm. I did well. Like, I mean, it just starts with cra like crazy troll subtitle dialogue and proceeds to get more insane. Yeah. And so it just, it just fit my wheelhouse. I think so it, it, it went, I turned in the script and I had that moment where, because you're petrified. I mean, it's so scary being a writer, a staff writer on your first show, particularly one that you feel like this is your shot, like this yeah. is it. And I'm so scared. And then he walks in, and him and Marty both walk in, and they just shut the door, and they just grab me and hug me, and they go, Drew, welcome to the family. And I was like, oh, thank Aww. God. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. I, uh, and, um, <laughs> and, he goes, and it wasn't called selfless. And Joss's joke always, when he would start notes, he would go, I have nothing before fade in. And then, and so he says that. It's funny. And then he goes, "I have nothing before fade in." And he goes, "Oh wait, no, I do." And I, I don't like the title. And I was like, "Like he thought that was a joke, and then he screwed up his own joke." Um, um, and then, and then, so then, um, that was episode five. Episode six, it's not like anything's gotten better. Everyone's still gone. Um, uh, Drew Greenberg does, does episode six, so we sort of swapped it. And then, but episode seven comes around, and we're officially this, which is con which is going to be conversations with dead people, yeah. and we're officially screwed. Like uh, Joss is direct is now moved from train job to direct episode six of Angel, which was um, the bottle episode where they all um, go back to their old identities, and it's so it the the craziness, and now Firefly 
is 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 having trouble yeah. and the, the the network is upset about it and they're making him change the pilot and all of this stuff is happening and so we get really behind like hilariously behind on episode seven and um uh what like prep starts so you know you usually have an eight day prep and then you start shooting the episode um we're on day four of prep and we don't even have any ideas for what it's going to be about what the episode is going to be like nothing and we you know, were talking and he starts saying well why don't send drew out to set and we'll see if we can come up with something um and so i would go out to set occasionally and then and then one night he was done, he was directing and i was back at the office i remember this so clearly this was the other like key thing that i look back on uh, to, to sort of learn from which is um he sort of said listen i understand um i have to be around for generating the idea and so at a certain point uh, so he drives up and this this is the thing that happens on writing staffs um everyone gets really cynical and bitter about if the showrunner's not in the room we're not going to get anything done and so what happens is as a group is everyone sort of decides like we're just going to complain about this all the time and <laughs> and, and we're not going to work because it, and there's some truth to it like there's some truth to that that you need the showrunner there to feel like it I, I certainly understand it now however I was too green to understand this. And so everyone went home and I kept thinking, we're so screwed. I'm just going to sit in my office and come up with ideas. And I'm walking out of, of the office. It's 11 at night. His van pulls up from uh, directing Angel. And he goes, what the hell are you still doing here? I said, I thought I'd come up with ideas. He's like, well, that's sweet of you. But look, at the end of the day, I, I have to just come up with an idea. I'm sorry, you should go home. And I said, I know, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't try. And he just grabs me and hugs me. And he goes... <laughs> And no one has said that. Like, <laughs> come upstairs, sit in the editing room with me, and let's uh, and we'll talk. And we sat up in the editing room, and we had our first lightsaber fight. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Lassick with it was the editor too, who uh, cut Cabin in the Woods for me. And it was the, sort of the three of us just sitting around playing with lightsabers at two in the morning. And Joss goes, "Oh, I know. What if Andrew and Jonathan show up, and we'll just start the episode there?" And like, it's just that kernel that night at two a.m. Uh, starts the the idea and then the next morning we just broke it the next day like the whole episode and and jane and i and marty and josh the four of us just wrote it over two days just each of us took yeah. essentially a fourth of the script and just wrote and then we were shooting it like we were shooting it two days later yeah. which was one of those like okay it's you we're gonna just throw you in the deep end kid but it, it is i learned everything i needed to know like okay you can do this and the, the other thing about Josh was he would never move until it was ready. Yeah. Like, he, he could have said, well, let's just throw some crappy episode up there. He never would do that. He'd say, we're going to wait until it's right, even if everyone on production is going to scream at you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to jump forward to features yeah. because, um, so you've been doing work on Buffy, and then you end up transitioning over to Angel, um, which I also loved. And you were there through the end of Angel? Yes. Yeah, so Angel, Angel's great. So I it, killed a lot of shows. Yeah, that's yeah, really uh, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some, some people are, 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 you know, start the process. You, you really, yeah. you, you, you bring it home and bring it to a conclusion. Over and over, yeah. Um, uh, talk to us about uh, Cabin in the Woods. Had you written a feature before Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, I did. I did Cloverfield was first. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot yeah. about Cloverfield. So sorry, Cloverfield okay, is, yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> so... Cloverfield feels like one of those sort of like, hey, what if kind of ideas. 100%. And so and at that point, so I, let me get the chronology right. So 
uh, Buffy, then uh, Angel, and then you worked to Alias. Correct. And did you start having the same kind of relationship with JJ that you did with Josh? Yeah, very much so. And I think Josh and, Josh and JJ were friends. And yeah. so part of him was like, it was, I owe it to yeah. Josh. You just yeah. hire Drew and then make yeah. him do everything you don't want to do. Yeah. Which is essentially the story of my career. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and so then I would go there at Alias. And then Lost was happening that same first year. So I started, and I just loved Lost. I saw that pilot and I was like, what, what is this? Can I work on both? And so I, the building was the same building. So you just bounce back and forth. And that's where I started working with Damon and Carlton right away, like sort of there as well. So I was just in this. It was it was a it was a wonderful time. Like well, but I'll observe that you happen to be um, starting to work at a time when there were three powerful showrunners who were also moving into features, and you were the really good writer who they were working with all the time. And so it feels like a very natural choice. If I'm JJ Abrams, like who's a really good writer I know who? Oh, yeah, write, write us a movie. Yeah, but but you know, part of it, I was thinking about this the other day. You spend so much of your time in in your career trying to get a job, right? Yeah. So that that's sort of your MO, like, how can I get work? Yeah. How can I get work? But then you need to move to a second part of your career, which is, what job should I do? I need to, what, what is the more important job? And that decision comes much earlier than you realize. And I remember, so after Angel, um, I, got, I got a lot of offers. Mm -hmm. And uh, JJ and Josh could not have been less fashionable. It sounds so strange yeah. to say this now. Nobody wanted genre serialized storytelling. Nobody. Everyone wanted... Um, uh, uh, serialized CSI type shows and I got offers from those shows and I remember I had to go into the agency and say and I thought my agents were going to fire me and when I said I'm going to go on this alias show they're like alias is about to get cancelled and I remember thinking am I, am I making this huge mistake because everyone thinks I'm dumb but I like these guys like I like when I sit down and think about what do I want to type I want to type this show I don't care and I, and I think that that, like, I look back and go, oh, that, that sort of, I, 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 to this day when I make decisions, I go, what do I want to write? Like, is this, I don't care about it. Is it a good business decision or not? I just say, when it's me alone, because we're all so alone, right? <laughs> this is where we get real. Um, no, it's like, what, what, when you're stuck with that page, like, what are you going to do? And, that, and that's what happened with Alias and Lost, you know? Like, it just, like, I just went with them. And then the mainstream sort of came to those guys. It wasn't the other way around. So um, working on those two shows and then the chance to write Cloverfield, um, Cloverfield, when you wrote it, the, my, hit, my recollection of it was that you weren't letting anybody know what it was actually about. So right. You were trying to shoot it in secret and, and shoot it for sort of fairly low budget or shoot it as if it's a different movie than it actually was. Was that an early plan or was that a... a no, it never, it never felt like, again, like... I, it never felt like we we didn't know what we were doing, yeah. which is really important. Like it was Thanksgiving, I was working, I was sitting in my office, and JJ calls, and he was doing press for Mission Impossible Three, and he said, "I'm standing in Tokyo, I'm looking at Godzilla toys, I'm wondering why didn't that old that other Godzilla movie work? I keep thinking maybe if we did it differently, maybe if we just did it like the Blair Witch Project, maybe we could do a movie. Do you want to do that?" And I said, "Yeah." And it, I said, yeah, I can, I, I'd love, that sounds good. He said, okay, um, we're going to meet with you on Tuesday. He said, it was a Friday. So Tuesday, he, they asked me to show up at Paramount, and, and JJ and I go to Paramount, and that's all he pitches. He just pitches, we do Godzilla, but with the Blair Witch, the Blair Witch style. And, and they're like, okay, how, how quick can you have a script? And they look at me, and I go, well, I'm on a show, not till the end of the season. And they said, no. And JJ says, write it over your holiday break. And I, you know, my shoulders slumped. And I, I called the parents. And I said, I'm not coming home. And I wrote sort of, I wrote this lengthy 40-page outline. 
because that we, you know, that was sort of our process over there, like really detailed outlines. I thought, well, at least this will tell them what they want to do. I turned the outline in, and they greenlit it. So they 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 read it and said, okay, you need to be shooting in April, which is January. We didn't have a director. We didn't have anything. We didn't hire Matt till. February, Matt didn't have a script until two weeks before production. Like it was really, it never felt like, it never felt like movie making. It always felt like just guys in the garage, like tricking people into giving them money. Like that's 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 what it felt like. Like let's just go. And JJ, that was very much JJ. It still is JJ. It's like let's just go. Let's just go and not worry about it too much. And we'll figure and trust that we will figure it out. So with Cloverfields, you were able to, to shoot that and uh, hopefully stay very involved in sort of the cut and sort of seeing it all come together, and it turned out great. Um, when was the decision to try to do Cabin in the Woods, and was that a similar sort of like, hey, what if? Yeah, kind of. So let me think of the chronology. So Cloverfield comes out. When was the writer's strike, John? So that was, it was... Oh, where did the writer's skill? Yeah, that? Who, who remembers? 2007. Yeah. So... so Cloverfield, come, I, I want to say, I could be wrong, but I think it comes out the, um, February of 2007. So Joss and I, um, we keep talking about how we miss, but we were talking about conversations with dead people, and we were talking about how there's this energy that happens, because I think we were both, you know, I, I was sort of, I, I think we just missed writing together, and but he was developing, and, and the feature side, everything takes so long, and there's something about TV about, you don't have an idea on Thursday but by Monday you're shooting. That's that's infectious. It's also terrifying and horrible for your life. But it all. But you also push yourself into places you would never go because you don't have time to second guess it. You just go. This is what my brain thinks right now. So let's start shooting. And we we, we were having one a dinner when I'm talking about how how valuable that is. And we said, what if we just what if we just gave ourselves an assignment? And the assignment is we're going to get a hotel. We walk into the hotel. Um, and we are not allowed to leave the hotel until we have a script. So however many days that takes us, we're going to just write a feature, and we're going to try to do that. I think this was after Serenity, so he had just done that. That's that's sort of where we were. And it really was just a lark. Like, it was just like, let's just, it was more a, a writing experiment. Like, let's just push ourselves to try something different. And we talked for about six months while I was finishing up that season um, of whatever, of Lost. So that would have been Lost season four, I want to guess. Um and and I, I we so John, and then it happened. We sort of come up with the basic construct of cabin, but but really it was very loose. But we knew our sort of act breaks. Which Josh was big on structure, so it was always like end of end of the first thirty pages they raise the dead, end of act two they go down the tunnel into the control room. The rest will figure out, and that was kind of it. And so, and if you look at the movie, it's essentially genre convention, and then two guys make fun of genre convention. That's essentially the movie, and so that's what it was. It was just it was two and guys. It was meta, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 it's, 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 if you look at it, and we didn't realize this, we were shooting, and our wives pointed out, you understand, that's just you two. Yeah. It's it, it even looks like the two of you, like you've even dressed the two of you the same the way that you guys dress and we didn't it was like this weird bomb and they're like yeah and look one of them is the smarter core that gets stabbed in the stomach by the girl at the end by his own work and the other one is just goofy and likes merman and gets his face bitten off like it's so weird you look at that movie now and you're like oh jesus christ i don't want to psychoanalyze myself yeah. but it made it easy to write like yeah. it made it because of that so we just wrote for 
four days in that, and we got this room in Santa Monica right upstairs and downstairs, and it really was like yeah. we had a printer, so you'd you'd write it, and the printer would come off like the end of that Stephen. You're really good at printers, Stephen so that's panel, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like a, throw it, yeah. Down, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we would do that, and and, it, and you couldn't question it. I remember at the time, what Josh likes to tell the story because at the end we're in Act Three, and he he yells upstairs. How can she shoot the werewolf if she doesn't have silver bullets? And I, <laughs> and I go, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> and we just started laughing, like because we were so serious about it. Yeah. And then we wrote that, and then we were like, okay, let's see if we can give us get get money to do this. And then the writer strike happened, yeah. which was which was nice for us because. It was like, oh, I don't have to go back on the show for a while. That's the only thing that people don't. It sounds it, terrible. Yeah, it was a, it was a lovely vacation. It, I, it, it yeah. was for TV staffs. Yeah. Because it sort of happened when TV staffs were at their most miserable. Yeah. So on a weird side, the TV side was like, please, can we have a strike? It's like snow so days. they caught up. It was like it was, a snow day. It was snow days that went on way too long. It, it yeah, did, yeah. but you didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. At the time, you really, like, and, and we were yeah. young. We didn't understand the how how difficult this yeah. was going to be. We were just dumb. And it was yeah. like, oh, we get to go hang out and drink coffee and meet you? Yeah. Like, that's why I met you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just, just on the line, just yeah. drinking coffee and walking around. Like, yeah. it sounds great. Yeah. Any excuse not to work, you know, is a great when you're a writer. And so, so we just do that. And then when the strike, and then, but because that script had been written, we just, uh, when the strike ended, we were, it seemed like, oh, they've written a spec. Yeah. But we hadn't. It had just been done because yeah. we just wrote it on the, on the, in the time before, and then we just decided to not worry about it. And then we just sent it off mm -hmm. um, when we got back and, uh, and again, tricked more people into giving us money. That's Fantastic. Really, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good, good trick for everyone. Um, let's, you also made a movie this year uh, called The Martian. Yes. Um, it's, pre it's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> And I, I have a feeling that a lot of our questions, as we open up for Q and A, will be about Martian-related things because it's going to be fresh in people's minds. Um, I wanted to commend you on a few things um, that I thought were just terrific about it. Is that uh, it's things that seem easy that are actually really hard to do on the page, which is to set up um, a reader audience expectation and then to be able to defeat it um, in clever ways. Because when you are experiencing a, a character suffer defeat after defeat after defeat. Um, like Matt Damon's character does, it you only can feel for him if you knew what was supposed to happen. And to be able to set up those expectations uh, clearly and concisely and cleanly is really, really hard. And it seems like the easiest thing, but you know, to let the audience understand what he's trying to do and what the, the plan is, and so the plan can go wrong, is a really challenging thing. And I don't know that many other people are going to give you credit for it. So I want to, in this room, give you credit for how challenging that is to do. You're totally right. It's that's really great. hard. <laughs> Thank you. You're, it's actually making me sweat hearing you describe it, because I'm yeah. like, oh, right, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I worked really hard on that part. Um, because <laughs> the reversal is the fun part, but it's all the stuff. It's, it's, it's essentially it's a series of jokes, and you have to keep setting up the, the, the thing and not make it feel like you're setting up the thing. And then you have the punchline, which is the, the, how everything goes wrong in your movie, right. um, which is, of course, how it ultimately goes right. Um, I also wanted to commend you, um, uh, and again, you know, the book is some of this as well, but uh, so much of making a movie like this for a major studio is dealing with all the people involved in making a, a big movie like this. Yeah. And I kept feeling, as I was watching this movie, the pressures a screenwriter would feel in your position to make simpler, more obvious choices, or to, well, what if, what if we did this? Or what if it could be a little bit more like this? And to stay true to sort of mission from the very start. Yeah. Did you have any sort of, like, did you give yourself any prime directives of like, you know, this is never a romance, this is never, uh, what were the sort of guiding principles as you sat down to write 
the story that like th these are the, the 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 lines they will never cross. Yeah, I tend to not get too intellectual. It's a, it's more of a gut, mm -hmm. you know. And you just sort of say, I love this, mm -hmm. and if if it feels wrong, you know, like then I then that's when I start thinking. When they say, oh, we want to give them a love interest, mm -hmm. then I think, oh, wait a minute, no, that feels wrong. But it's not like I think about it ahead of time. It's more what's right for the story and so much of this was in the book yeah. and so it's just about protecting mm -hmm. what i loved about the book yeah. but part of that is also knowing what can go mm -hmm. like what what don't i need to protect and so it's it's this weird balance where you're just trying to find it i keep trying the other thing they don't tell you about being a screenwriter is that half your job is writing uh, is writing the script but I, the other half is getting bills through congress like that's the other half of your job yes. and and the problem is the thing that makes you good at one is often the exact opposite skill set that you need for the other. Like, you're good at being a writer usually because you're good at sitting by yourself in a room, in a quiet room. Like, that's a whole, that's who you are usually. That's what, and then they say, now can you please go argue with 300 people about why something needs yes. to be this way? Yeah. And it, it's a whole different problem. And, and so you just sort of learn, like, what's important. Did, you know? did, did TV help you with that? Without question. Okay. Without That was in Joss more, yeah. more than anything, because he would always say, nothing matters other than the emotional truth. Mm -hmm. Nothing matters. Like, the uh, plot doesn't matter. Like, that kept happening. The, the, the single mistake I see over and over is people worrying about plot. Mm -hmm. And he and that's from him. He would come in, and you would see all the plot moves on the, on the, on the board, and then he would look at it and go, but what does it mean? What are they feeling? Mm -hmm. And the whiteboard would just get erased over and over and over, and yet if you if you saw Buffy going through something, yeah. it would stick. Mm -hmm. And then so you learn that. I mean, when I look at The Martian, it, you just because it, 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 it I mean, look Andy Weir's book is is extraordinary, mm -hmm. and and so much of it I just want to protect. And but the the way I approached it was to say, this is a movie about optimism and loneliness. It's that's it's this weird combination of these two things, and it's a movie about people constantly looking out for one another despite the you know w without worrying about themselves even if you look at matt damon the first thing he does is let them know it wasn't my captain's fault yes you know like like it's it, so so when you then i put that on the board and go every scene needs to be about this yeah and if it's not about this it can go great it doesn't have to go but it can go you know um and, and that sort of sets the skeleton yeah sort of the way you look at is the way i approach it at least yeah you'll find that the scenes that don't that aren't about one of those two things aren't going to make it in the movie ultimately down the road as it is. It, it, yeah, right. It goes right on the cutting cutting room floor for sure. Cool. Um, we're at the time where I should open up for questions. So I want uh, people with questions. So raise your hand. And um, I always look this way, so I'm going to try to really make sure I hit some people on the side. <laughs> I'm going to start with you. Right word shift. Um, oh, we have a microphone. So uh, when I pick you, you'll get a microphone in your hand. OK. Hi, I really appreciate your work. Um, when you are writing, you have a certain set of priorities. And now that you've directed, and you get this uh, script on the set and things are happening in real time, you have a different set of priorities. What advice would your director self give your writer self about writing something you're actually going to make? I found I'm writing substantially less dialogue. Like, I really have cut the amount of dialogue. Like, I look at my scripts. Not always. I still love dialogue. But you, once you've directed, you realize how little you need. Like, you're just, you're just like, how can I be more concise? I find over and over that the lesson I keep learning is how to, how to make it simpler, how to make it simpler. I, I fight that every day. Like I still look at pages and you're just, what can cut? Because so much of it gets cut. I'm sure you find this too. Like, yeah, uh, you do. And you also at times will find yourself on set thinking like, who the fuck wrote this? Because it's it, it, like, that's not a shootable thing. I mean, it's like, I, and sometimes I'll, I will curse myself for um, writing my way out of 
using clever words to write my way out of a situation, but it's not actually a filmable thing that I, I wrote. And so uh, there, yeah. there was a moment on the nines where I was like, we're in the middle of this forest. I'm like, that, I, I can't do that. That's not even a thing that can be done. And, uh, yeah. and on the page, it seemed to make sense because it, it literally it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense movie-wise. Yeah, I remember Jeff Bell, who was running Angel. Um, he was really instrumental because what he said was, every time I would turn a script in, every scene we would go through, and he would say, where's the camera? With every single scene. And I would go, I don't care. <laughs> like, uh, like, isn't that somebody else's job? And he kept saying, no, it is not somebody else's job. It is your job. You need to know where the camera is because you need to know what's important about this scene. And if it's not, if you write it that way, it, you'll be happier with how it comes back. And so it changed how I wrote. Like, you, you're constantly aware of where, where the camera is. Yeah, I'm always arguing that you have to make sure you're writing a movie and not writing a script. Yes. And, um, and some of that is like sort of how it feels to an audience, but there's another level to that check, which is like writing something that actually can be a movie and that, you know, physically is possible to shoot and um, not is just clever because it's clever. And so if there's jokes that are on the page that can't possibly work, you have to be mindful of that. And, um, yeah, so I mean, so you want, and, and I remember, I remember yeah. hearing, did you, did you hear this? Maybe this is still out there that writing professors would tell you, no, no, a director will get really upset with you if you put camera moves and visualizations. The, I have found the exact opposite is true. I have absolutely over and over with the, with big directors felt they're so appreciative that you're thinking about it. They'll change it. Yeah. They'll change it, but they're, but they're appreciative that you care yeah. and that you're giving them something, to a, a jumping off point. You have to be careful. You don't want to be so obnoxious. You want to make sure it's important, you know, like and that you're thinking about it. Don't just throw, you know, pushing in when you don't need a push in. But you, if, you're, if you're conscious of this, I, I found the exact opposite is true. Yeah, if you're going to lead the reader's eye in a way that it's going to speak to the movie, then that's a helpful thing. Question right here. Hi, my name's John. Um, congrats on The Martian. I saw it I'm halfway through the book, but I had to see the movie to do my homework before tonight. Do so. you like uh, space? I do. He has a NASA shirt. He's wearing a NASA shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've had this for a while, oh, so okay. I just didn't buy it, but I did see the movie, uh, so congrats. Um, and I, my question, I was trying to think of a good question coming over here, and I, I find myself gravitating to originality, and I think Andy's book is extremely original. Yeah. And part of my question is, what originality of yourself did you, if you didn't answer this already, did you bring to adapting the book into the screenplay? And part B is, I think originality can be such a challenge in both television and cinema now. Um, working with JJ and working with Joss and coming up with stuff as original as Cloverfield and Cabin in the Woods and even, you know, what you did with World War Z, you know, how do you deal with just coming up with original ideas that really kind of stand out? Does that make sense? It does. It does. I think you have to trust that if you're bored, it's wrong. Or if you don't, no, more importantly, if you don't want to write it, it's wrong. Like, that's the thing I find myself over and over. Because, you know, look, we're writers. We don't want to write. It, that's true. <laughs> like, but if you really don't want to write, if you're sitting there going, so, you know, this does not seem fun, it's usually a sign that it's boring. Like, it's usually a sign that it's rote. And so you look for, like, what's going to be, how do I change it? You know, like, how do I change it so that I'm not bored? Like, uh, I find that over and over. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 I always recommend, like, only write the movies you would actually pay money to see. And if that is a big, giant blockbuster movie, that's fantastic. You should write that movie. But if it's a weird indie art, strange re relationship drama, you yeah. should write that movie because that's the one you're actually going to finish and that you're going to put your heart and soul into. 
Yeah, and that's what happened with the Martian. I mean, we forget. Like when, so when the Martian got sent to me, it wasn't even a book yet. It was an ebook that was Andy was publishing over the course of three years on his website, chapter by chapter. And I was at a Let's Be Cops punch-up session. <laughs> this is true. So I, here's my other bit of advice. Go to every punch-up session. Like whenever they say, hey, even if it has nothing to do with what you do, they're like, just go be helpful. I yeah. feel like writers always like, when it's it's so hard writing is so hard it's fun everyone, they feed you everyone's yeah. happy to see you if you're just there to be helpful and so I go to a lot of these and at the end of the, the Let's Be Cops punch up session Adithya Sood who was the producer on that movie said we're, we're I think we're optioning this guy's website we're, we're, we're optioning this weird ebook uh, I think you might like it though. It's pretty good. It's about a guy who gets trapped alone on Mars. And I said, oh, that, that does sound that does sound interesting. Send it to me, and and they, they sent it to me, and I read it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was one of those situations where I, I remember I went down to my wife and I said, I'm I think I'm going to say because I, I I say no a lot. That's the other thing you learn is don't say yes. Like don't say yes unless you really care because it's too hard. It's just too hard, and it, 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 you, you won't do your best work, and you really, you should love it. You don't always have that option, but once you have that option, be, be careful, you know. And, and she said, well, what is it about this one? And I, I told her, and she pointed out that it remind, it must remind me of Los Alamos, which I hadn't figured out. I hadn't put that together. That it was like, oh, it's, it's about scientists. Oh, it's about you know, scientists and fixing, fixing printers. That's I right. Mean, it's about yeah. it is, it is, and it's about, and it's this weird sort of optimism. And well, I, uh, and also, and I didn't, put, here's the other thing, I didn't put this part together, so I went home, and this is the other thing, trust your gut, because I didn't, I didn't really know why, I just knew I, I loved it, you know, I didn't understand why, so, and I didn't understand through the whole movie, um, and then I went home to screen it for the home, because I thought, okay, it's Los Alamos, this is special, let's go home and screen it for the hometown, and I, we're sitting there, and it's all my parents, friends, and family, all my old teachers were all sitting there. We watched the movie. They're very happy about the movie. And they, they, we do a Q&A like this. And a guy stands up at the back of the room and he says, um, he says, I just want to point out that, you know, this idea of don't give up on people, um, even when the world wants to give up on them, must run in their family. Because his, his father, because my dad, who's there, is, a, is the town doctor, and he says, his father, you know, everyone said my wife was going to die and his dad refused to give up on her and she's here tonight and she stands up and it's this lovely moment and my dad was in the bathroom which is the best part of this <laughs> he, to he totally misses it and I realized like oh the emotional theme of the movie for me and again it's different for everyone it's different for Ridley I think it's different for Andy I think it's different but for me this idea that you don't give up and my mom's a teacher so that if you're looking at we're celebrating learning and we're celebrating not giving up on people no matter what, it's my parents. And I didn't put it together. I didn't put it together until I was standing there with, with that guy who stands up at the mic. And that's kind of, I don't know if you find, feel this way. I find when I look back at my career, so much of it is what I was going through at the time. Or, you know, and I don't realize it. I, you just learn to trust something. There's a reason that you, you care. Yeah, there's a reason why you wrote that version of The Martian. And, there's other, right. and it's recognized that there are other versions that other writers could have made, which could have been great also, but they would have been a, a different kind of telling of that story. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Question right here. Well, first of all, congratulations on being one of uh, Hollywood's uh, Variety's new leaders Ooh. yesterday. No one mentioned that was yet. That, uh, yeah. Yeah, Thank I saw Variety. Congratulations. <laughs> this is the, uh, he was uh, chosen as one of the creative uh, 
future generation making big waves. So oh, good. Okay, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's going to like that? Colleen Goddard. She is going to be, uh, my mom is going to be very happy to get that. Yeah. Um, I uh, actually was in the military, so I actually just saw the movie today, too, right before, and uh, there was many scenes in there where I'm like, yeah, we don't need a whole lot of anything there, so I really can relate to a lot of the stuff I was watching on film, so uh, props on that as well. Oh, that's great. Oh, <laughs> um, thank you. Question I was wondering about the future. I know you're in talks for the standalone Spider-Man for Marvel. You know, I'm right? not. No, somebody I'm else not. is doing that. Yeah, they're not doing that anymore. Yeah, okay. no. it's yeah. Wikipedia needs updated. So here's the um, problem with Wikipedia. Yeah, you can do that. So <laughs> my friend John, John, say hello to everyone. So just to let you know, John likes to put fake things on my IMDb page, <laughs> and uh, Wikipedia. And what you learn is anyone can put anything on IMDb. But it is impossible to get things taken off. It is impossible, <laughs> including you can go there. So don't, if any of you are writing stories, fact check. Is all I get because I see stuff on Wikipedia because I don't really care. I, I you know, especially because it's like I know John's just gonna screw it up, whatever I do. <laughs> like, but be careful because I. Oh, my face is probably as red as mud right now. So <laughs> no, 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 it's um, not your fault. It's but I was just you know, not embarrassed. I was gonna ask about when uh, you were talking about selecting your material. You know, as you you know you picked everything and you were talking about the marsh. Yeah. You know what. You know, what are things that you look for when you watch, you know, whether it's the news or periodicals or, or, or whatnot? What is it that really sparks your interest? And you're like, I really like this. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you, you, you have to, it, part of it is you have to work hard to ignore, because uh, oftentimes I will read a script. Like, let's say I get sent something to rewrite. Um, your first instinct is, can I make this better? Right? And that's a natural instinct for a writer. And so, and so when you read, or when you read a piece of material, you go, can I make this into a movie? And usually, you, 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 you work hard to see how to make it into a movie. And that, and that can fool you into thinking that this is something that you want to do. So you have to sort of listen, like, that's not important. The question is, does this move me? Do I find myself haunted by this? That's what I look for over and over and over. With The Martian, I have Simon Kinberg, who produced it, um, sort of keeps the emails because they're funny of us talking because again it was an ebook like it was this weird thing that we were we realized we were going to have the tour we were going to have to go into a studio and say give us a hundred million dollars to make a movie about an ebook about a guy farming in his own shit like that's like we realized what a horrible idea that was but what I said to him was like I can't stop thinking about this guy driving around in his car um, with his life on the hood of his car while Waterloo plays. Like in my mind, I was like, I can't. To me, I understand, there's something about this idea of loneliness and optimism that I couldn't shake. And I, and I, it just kept going day to day. And I kept playing, I kept playing my disco hits and thinking, there's something, I don't know what it is, but I'm crying in my car. And Simon has the email where it just says, I'm crying in my car. Let's do this. Like that's all it says, and then and <laughs> and so and that's kind of what happened. And so you, and then you sort of go in to the studio, and and I'm like, I know this sounds like a stupid idea. That's the other thing. Like treat the studio like your partner. I'm like, I know this sounds dumb. However, I think there's something special here. Let me tell you what I love about this, and let's see if it feels special to you. And Emma Watson Fox felt that it like when we made that pitch she believed in it and then we got to call Andy Weir and say I think your life has changed I think we may get to make this and he, the best part about Andy is he used to work in his day job the guy, and he refused to believe it because he had never done this so he would have to go for six months while we were working on the movie 
he would take calls in the conference room <laughs> from his day job. He'd be like, I have to go. And we're like, Andy, I promise you, you can quit. You can quit. Like Ridley Scott is now doing this. Matt Damon said, yes, you can quit your job. And he's like, no, I, I, like, I didn't want to. But that sense of like the playlist that you've built and like you're responding to the emotional story that you haven't even written yet, yes. but that's what keeps coming you back to it. And so like you're writing the movie that can have this playlist in it and sort of get you to this place. I want my heart to break. That's what it is over and over. I want my, if my, my heart doesn't break, I don't want to do it. Like that's really what it is uh, over and over. That's the thing I look for in everything that I've done. Like is it, 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 it at some point, am I going to be writing this and cry? And it doesn't mean it has to be emotional. Like I'll, I'll cry when Merman walk through the clouds. Like it, it, it doesn't, I don't know what it is. It's just, is something going to connect. That's what you're looking for. Um, sorry, purple shirt, uh, young uh, woman with dark hair. Oh, sorry. Hi, John, Drew. I'm Drew. Hello. Um, I was wondering, kind of on the point you're at, how do you determine the tone for something like that? Because I went into it not knowing a lot, expecting it to be more 2001 Moon-esque. And I liked that it was a lot more inspirational than I thought thought it would be growing up and um you know watching those kind of movies and how did you get michael pena he was hilarious <laughs> we asked him he said yes yeah. he's not doing much um I, it's I, a surprisingly I, goofy movie i mean for like for, so, yeah, and and that was was that from your original pitch i mean uh, at what point was it just writing the characters you discovered some of these voices uh, tell me when that it's a little of all of it i mean i i do find the more i do this i realize that tone is this single hardest part of the job like it really is the single hard it's the single most important part of the job because if you each and each movie has its own particular tone and you have to be really clear about it like that's really so when i look at a movie when a screenplay i'm looking at tone every scene and a lot of it's gut you don't quite know but you but you can see oh this fits this movie but it does not fit this movie this is you know i, I like I often say this is a cabin idea. This this fits the cabin world. This doesn't fit this world. With the Martian, I'm so much. It's it's in Andy's book. I mean, that's so. I, I part of it was just I just need to protect what I love about this. And to me, it was the two things. It was optimism and loneliness, which I just felt like you don't see those two things together. You usually see optimism, optimi or uh, loneliness and despair. And there was something very interesting to me about this idea that these two things can coexist, and both of these two things can be weapons. You know, like this idea. And then part of it was just scientists. Like I really felt Andy captured the scientist's voice and the humor, this weird, I called it Gary Larson humor, you know, like this weird sort of that, all, that I saw all the scientists of my town have, this sort of far side humor that I felt like that's, that's what this is. So I sort of kept those, this one of my favorite far side cartoons is just two scientists pushing buttons. And this was on the Cabin in the Woods set also. Because um, if you look at it, I see, I see a lot of these things that Cabin in the Woods is also about scientists who have decided that they know what's best for humanity. It's a much darker version of, of it, but it's the same themes that I keep coming back to. But it's the, it's the cartoon where two scientists are just uh, slapping each other's buttons and one of them says, oh, how would you like it if I pushed your buttons for a while? And that's it. And it's just this weird, <laughs> just weird scientist. But I designed the control panel of Cabin to look like that because I like that sort of vibe. you know. And, and I sort of felt like that carried over to The Martian, too. Great. Right here. Uh, you, yes. Oh, me. Uh, you, f you first, then you. Well, how, how's that? I sort of pointed in between you. I apologize. Uh, Radiohead first. Radiohead. Okay, cool. Like, so it's kind of going off of tone a little bit. And one of the things that I love about uh, Cabin in the Woods and why it's actually one of my favorite um, 
screenplays is like the way you balance this seriousness with this like you know you don't give a shit add to because you have on the one hand you have this scene with uh not to spoil or the, the, scene, spoil. It's been the scene the scene where chris hemforth like drives his motorcycle there which is a scene that could have been totally played for last but i'm watching this and it's like i'm like my heart's breaking but then on the other hand you have bradley Whitworth whitford's uh death which is like fucking hilarious like he like and so i'm just wondering like how d with a movie with a, with a tone like that which is kind of tricky martian does it a little bit too but especially with cabin in the woods how do you like figure out the moment to kind of just go for the heartfelt go go for something that's really heartfelt or kind of pull away and just l like laugh at it with the audience yeah i i think it's weird because so much of tone is gut that's the thing that's really hard. I would, I would sit in those Cabin in the Woods production meetings and I would re realize how ridiculous I sounded because when I would say, like, no, no, the merman cannot give a thumbs up. You know, like, no, we, like, we can't. I don't know where the line is. Yes, it is okay for blood to blow out of the merman's blowhole. That is okay. But we cannot look at the camera when the merman does that. Like, it's weird and I don't... But you just trust, like, this is it. And then you, you need people that will get on board. And it will trust, like, your job as the director is, is tone. I mean, I, I think more than anything that your job is is maintaining what the tone is. And for me, so much of that came from Joss like, um, and the Buffy tone where all of these things could very easily veer into camp, you know. And the secret to not letting them is to treat your characters like they're real. Let the circumstances be insane, you know, which is what happens. But, but the, the, we never, you know, the characters always care. We talked about this all the time on The Martian. Like, uh, I didn't want any bad guys. Yeah, I think in the book, Teddy, uh, Jeff Daniels' character, he, he's a little bit more of the antagonist than I remember. I think part of because of what I had gone through on Cabin, where it was very important to me for Bradley and Richard, you have to believe these guys think they're saving the world. And when you look at it from that point of view, like you understand their actions. I wanted Teddy, I understood Teddy's point of view. I understood we, I'm not sacrificing five to try to save one. I, that's, that's a noble decision that no one else wants to make. And so you have to, you have to be respectful of everyone and you sort of have to shift your allegiance within scenes, you know, um, and, and be, be vigilant about it. You also have to be very aware of what the audience is feeling at the moment and so where you've gotten them to and one of the hardest things to do as a writer is to uh, you know what's going to happen you know what happened before you know where the journey has taken them but in that moment as an audience you don't know so you only have the information ahead of that time so what is the audience feeling what is the audience expecting can I either meet their expectations or exceed their expectations in a way that's really going to reward everybody for their patience and you know attention. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And then I would add to it also, what's it going to play like the second time? Because yeah. that's the other thing. I'm like, if you know, using that example, you know Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth is going to run into an electrical field and die. So it, when you watch it again, what's going to stick with you is he cares. Like, he cares. You're going to watch. I watch that scene. It breaks my heart because he's giving his speech about, I still love her. That's really what the scene is. And in a weird way, like, I think he knows he's going to die. I don't care. I still love her. And that's the thing that's the hard part because you're trying to trick the audience the first time around. But the second time, it's the second time that you have to hold it. Um, you have to hold yourself to that standard of, like, is this scene still interesting yeah. when you know where it's going to go? Does it still make sense when the, yeah. the trick's revealed? Question right here. Thank you. Well, yeah, done, like, well done. I did it. <laughs> Variety's leader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Um, so my question actually is about Daredevil and the yes. process of developing Daredevil, because I know I don't think you were able to stay for the whole show, right? But you're still a producer, and yeah. Yeah, I didn't get I didn't get to stay for a showrunner because, but I was writing Martian and Daredevil at the same time, and someone was talking to me about this, and I didn't put this other part together because if you look at that, it's weird that both I was writing those first two episodes of Daredevil and Martian at the sort of the same time because they're yeah. very. I, I see a lot of similarities between the two that nobody else sees. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what similarities you see. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it, they're both about, uh, for me at least, um, they've, they've got these, these sort of two sides of the male protagonist, you know, and I think that that, and um, even like Vincent D'Onofrio, because even though that we, we moved some of his scenes into later episodes, all that stuff about him, and his, the, the woman who's, Vanessa, who's going to become his wife, just meeting in the art gallery, those were all in the first couple episodes. All that stuff was in, and it's so much of me, I think I was pushing against the idea of antagonists. I think in my mind, I, for whatever reason, because I, I do love villains, but I think I was sick of antagonists, if that makes sense. Um, and so I was just writing. Uh, I'm going to stop you for one second. Yeah. So uh, antagonist being like the person who's forcing the change, is that what you mean? Or just a person who is deliberately allying himself against your hero, like the one who would self-identify, like, I'm going to stop that guy. Is that what you're I don't know. You're much smarter than me. Right. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think the former. Okay. Say so, it again because it sounded so, better than I will say it. So, yeah. yeah. So you're saying you want characters, if they're going to change, they're changing because of their own thing, not because of an outside Correct. character who's, like, who's stepping out against them. And, I, and, that they, and that they need to exist separate from the hero, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, Absolutely. they just need to exist. Every villain is a hero, so the sense that story could be told from the other perspective and it would still be valid. I think that's right. Okay. And, and, and I think in, in The Martian, the way that manifested is that we just don't have a villain. Like, we just don't. The, the situation is a villain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and circumstance. And in Daredevil... It's like the, what's crazy, and Steve Denight, who who was my partner in crime on this one, we once we we sat after the first two episodes aired, and we were watching this, or we were watching the season, and we're watching our, our antagonist or the, the the villain of the movie has the most defined love story of the whole first season, and it's heartbreaking. And I'm like, I'm looking at this, I'm like, Steve, you understand this whole first season is about you and I awkwardly trying to talk to girls, <laughs> and we put that. And we put that in our in our villain's mouth, yeah. and our hero just gets beat up a lot. That's really like it's this weird. Uh, that must be Blade Runner. When I when I think about it, like that must be the Blade Runner influence. So I'm saying I'm looking at your heroes. For, yeah, I'm looking yes. at your heroes for both The Martian and for Daredevil. And it is a character who is weirdly optimistic despite all the terrible things that are happening yeah. to him. And there, there are a lot of heroes you could sort of say that about, but it's a weird sort of damaged brainy kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny. My friend Brian K. Vaughn, who was a wonderful writer. Uh, um, and was on Lost with me. He likes to make fun of me, and he says every script you've ever written ends uh, with dot dot dot, and they never stood a chance. Like that's <laughs> he's like I, I, I could just put that on every single yeah. script, including The Martian. By the way, I think you know just because we put a pop song on it, like yeah. it's still there's this sort of optimism amidst futility. You know that sort of happens that over and over. I don't know. I guess it's themes that I keep coming back to. I don't know. Cool. Question over here. Um, we're gonna go all the way over to you. So, thank you. So, in like 2000 to 2005, Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams and Phil Ord and Chris Miller were doing all these weird things that nobody was watching, yeah. and now they're titans of the industry. As a industry leader, 
I was wondering who you think <laughs> those people, who you think, who you think those people doing the weird things that nobody is watching are now, or if you don't know, what qualities do you think gave Joss and JJ and whatnot that ability to become these incredible titans? Um, I'll, I'll, the first part, I'm actually curious what you guys think. Who do you like? What's everyone? That's the question. Is like, I realize now I'm at the stage where I'm not going to notice. Like I'm now at the stage where I'm not watching it the way I would watch, I would devour when I was 25. Like I want to know, you know, it sounds old, but what are the kids watching? Because that's where it's going. That's where you're going to see it. It's actually not the establishment, you know. Like that's what happened. Um, and I think the quality was those guys, and they continue to this day. They just do what they love. That's it. That's the secret. Like they don't care. Joss is the best because he will do. A, a $200 million movie and then he'll go direct a Shakespeare black and white movie in his house and he approaches both exactly the same. He approaches both with the same level of commitment, same level of enthusiasm. If, if you want to insult him, treat them like they're different. Like forget that that much ado, you know, come up to him and don't even mention much ado <laughs> and just talk about the Avengers. Don't treat like, say, oh, you've only directed three films and forget that one because he doesn't, he, in his mind, he doesn't treat it any differently and you just don't, that's the other trick. You don't, you don't really need that much money. That's the trick. You need, you know, like, if you, once you are making enough money to pay your rent and your bills and feed your family, you don't have to say yes to shit. Like, that's the trick. You'll get fooled in all of these things and so, as a result, you be selective. Like, just try to make what you love, and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, I, I would just reiterate, like, I think Phil and Chris are another great example of the people who are just making the stuff that they love. And none of these people have, like, set out to like, create a brand. And so we yes. can think of what they're, what they're doing as all being, but they're just really actively pursuing what they love. And they're being very smart about, you know, making the stuff that they can make and make it for places that will let them make it. But I agree with Drew that I don't think we're in a great position to recognize who those people are who are making those fascinating things now. So I don't know if it's people on YouTube channels that are doing great stuff that we're just not aware of, but there's people doing that stuff. And we live in a time of great TV, so there's you know more TV than has ever been made before. And some of these people who are doing these amazing shows for Netflix already go off and do features and do other things too, which is going to be great. And, and to give one example, I love Rick and Morty so much. <laughs> I love it so much. There's an, like If you haven't seen Rick and Morty, Please just watch the episode where uh, uh, Rick's girlfriend comes back and he just cries in the garage. Well, the end, the episode of the end, the end of the episode is he's just trying to kill himself, and then a song plays, and then a guy mows his lawn, and I'm like, "What is happening? Like, how is this? How is this on television? It feels like the, what I what I what always excited me when I was 23, just people doing things that without caring, without caring about the audience, which is the weird thing." In a, in a way, that's actually what the audience wants the most, is for you not to care about them and just tell the story that you want to tell, and they come to that. I, I feel like audiences can tell when you're pandering to them. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right here. Yep. Yes. I, I got to wonder, what was it like to have it like in your hands yeah. and then just sad, just, just take it's it really away? Sad. Yeah, no, it was worse because I had a whole, I had a whole crew. You know, like I had, I had offices. We had, I had people that I'd hired. I had this gorgeous artwork, and that's a script that I've written that I think is the best script I've ever written. Like, I really believe that, and and you know, but look, we've picked a tough business. Like things fall apart. You know that going in, and you know you're going to get your heart broken. Like you're going to, and if and if you if you let that stop you, you won't do your job right. And so you know. 
like I knew, I knew that, that I was trying to do something insane, you know, and that I believed it. And the truth is, if we hadn't got hacked, I'd be shooting it right now. But we got hit with a terrorist act. Like, you can't anticipate these things. <laughs> Sony went, almost went down, you know, like, and, and it's sad, but I don't, in a weird way, I don't know if you feel this way, John, part of it is you get to write it. It's hard for other people to understand. This happened because Cabin, look, I, Cabin, that studio went down. I bring down studios. And Cabin was on the shelf, and everyone was like, oh, that must have been so hard. And it is because you, you, you're proud of the movie, and you want other people to see it. But I got to make it. Like, it, it, it exists in my head. So in a weird way, that emotional side, the hard part is going and having to fire your friends. That's the hard part, is when they say your movie's going down and having to walk up and see these people who've been killing themselves for a year. Like, these people that I see every day who are killing themselves, doing something. You know, I, we've got previs that I just, I want the world to see, because you're like, I want my, you to see what my artists design. I want you to see what we've come up with. That part's really hard, and and you struggle with it, but you realize, like, you also know, like, who knows? Who knows? Stuff comes back. You just you kind of keep your head down. Deadpool. Dead, Deadpool died. That's, that's, right. that's right. It does. That's so right. you're going to leak your previous. And, and, yeah. and, yeah. That's right. You, yeah. you play the long game, and you trust that you just try to tell good stories, and sooner or later, they may or they may not. The other thing you learn is you only want to make it if it's the right home, and it's the right fit, and it's the right time, because it's really hard. And so I, you know, like, there's a Sinister script, Six script out there, that I'm very proud of, and I hope I still hope one day we get to do it. You know, the other lesson to take is like all these other uh, showrunner director people we're talking about, they've all had those heartbreaks. We've all seen them have those heartbreaks where like this thing they wanted to do more than anything else suddenly was not going to be able to be possible, and they did something else, and it was yeah, great. That's so. right. Yeah. All right, we're going to ask two more answer two more questions. So, gentleman in the black hat. Uh, yeah, can you talk about your strategy? Oh, sorry. Yeah, can you talk about your strategy for writing the swear words in Martian? Yes. You, I learned this the hard way, because when I was younger, you're like, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want, and then you realize like you, you don't get to. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the rating thing is very real, and it's a, it's a science. Yeah, but you, you, you bent the rating thing. You, you got away with more than it. Yeah, but we had to go argue. Oh, like, yeah, we okay. had to go, like, but you know, I knew with Martian, you, you, like, in order to stay PG-13, you can only use one fuck. Mm -hmm. That's the rule. Um, and and it has, it's a very specific and type a non sexual non sexual, non -sexual kind of yeah, that's right um, and so John give us an example of both would so, you um, uh, so fuck off is fine great um, do you want to fuck is not fine oh okay great yeah um, so um, so I knew he just really wanted to hear me swear because I, I don't did. swear that often that's a hundred percent right yeah. um, and I knew I don't know I got very excited right away one of the first things I knew in that movie was that we were gonna have a lengthy sequence of a man operating on himself. And then we were going to uh, um, slowly push in on him, and then he was going to say fuck. And then I was going to cut in the script, it cuts to title right there. He says fuck, and then it goes the Martian. Yeah. And I sort of said, like, okay, that's the tone of the movie, and it sets the tone. Um, and then I knew that's it. That's the one we got. Then what happened? So then we shot it. At one point, just as an ad lib, Matt goes, fuck you, Mars. And Ridley thought that was really funny. And so Ridley and I argued about which fuck we got to keep. Because I really liked the first one. Ridley really liked the second. I, it's not like I didn't like the second one. I just, we, when we knew we had one. What happened was we tested the second one. And we moved, we pulled 
the first fuck out. Like the, the amount of science that went into this. Um, <laughs> and, we put, and, and, you, you get a, and when you test a movie, you get a score from one to 100. Um, and it's sort of a percentage score of how many people like it. It's, it's, it's soul killing, but that's a whole other decision. And you so went from a 99 to a 98. We went, for, no, we went uh, from a 92 to an 80. When, wow. And all we had done was change, we did a couple of tiny things, but changed that fuck. And you could feel it in the audience, but we didn't know, but the, fir the whole first act felt wrong. We couldn't feel what it was. And, and we were, when we were trying to figure out what we did, um, we realized the audience didn't know it was okay to laugh. Yeah. They didn't know it was okay to laugh, and that, because that happens really early, and it tells the audience, oh, this movie is supposed to be funny, too. And... When you when you didn't have that, things that were that we thought were funny were no longer funny anymore because the audience didn't know that, and it changed the whole movie. So it was, I really believe like our box office success came to that four letters, and then so then but then Ridley didn't want to lose the other one. And this is the other part. So do you remember? There's this part in the movie where Jeff Daniels is um, uh, yeah, Matt talks about his. Um, you know, he says, be careful what you type because the whole world is watching. Then we cut to the Oval Office, or cut to uh, Jeff Daniels talking to the Oval Office, and he says, I'm sorry, sir. What, what we had there was uh, this lengthy scene of him talking to the president. He's like, um, I, you know, I, I didn't know what a felter was either. I do no, and then he hangs up and he goes, I just had to explain to the president of the United States what a bureaucratic felter was. And then Sean Bean says, I made the mistake of typing it into Google. Don't. Yeah. And it, it, it's really funny. Those guys are really good. And and then the MPAA looked up what Felcher is, and they they hit the roof. Like they hit the roof, and so it became this negotiation. Where this is true, we had we had lawyers write letters where we said we will cut the Felcher if you give us the second fuck. Like that's actually I, that was somebody's job, and it happened. And those are those moments where I I'm just giggling in the back of the room. Aww. <laughs> It's a good life. Uh, last question right here. This question is for both of you. It's um, is writing as a writer and writing as a writer-director. And um, you were about to direct Martian. Yeah. And then you wrote a script as a writer but also as a director. Then you had to hand it over to Ridley. And, of course, you know, he knows nothing. Um, <laughs> Young upstart, yeah. So a lot of hand holding. What were the notes to him where you said, you know what, oops, this is like your blueprint is what you're about to do and you hand it over to somebody else. Um, after nine, how much it's changed you as a writer and what do you, how you approach that? Could you talk about it? Because I think as writers, as you said, we could just go whoop. And then we on the set, you go, holy shit, it's not going to work. Yeah. I did not say fuck. Speaking of shit, <laughs> do you think NASA is going to be sending our shit to Mars? <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Great. Um, uh, talk to us about the handoff, because yeah. you, the, originally this was a movie that you could be directing. Yes. And then uh, this other guy uh, came on board. Yes. And, um, and that must have been a strange thing. And I also can imagine it was a strange thing, because uh, while he's a vastly, vastly talented person, I, he's not the first person I think of to make a funny movie. And so right. those are complicated conversations, I bet. So what were those conversations like? It, it was this weird situation that, again, I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not yeah. complaining about this because you'll all hate me. Um, but Daredevil, Martian, and Sinister Six all got greenlit at the exact same time. And I had been committed to Sinister Six. They moved the release date up. And I had to bow out of two of the three. And we had this, we had this conversation where I was like, what do we do? And Fox was great. They said, listen, 
I think they're like, we want to make this. Matt Damon has a window right now. If we don't make this now, who knows? He he seems to love it. But with actors, you, you want to go when you have a window because who knows when you're going to have them again. And so why don't we try to find our top directors? If they say yes, great. And if not, we'll just wait for you after you finish Sinister Six. Ridley was our top. I had met with Ridley a couple of times. We've been trying to find stuff to do. Ridley's really funny. So that came up a lot. The idea that, oh, can he do comedy? This was a conversation. And I kept saying, look, first of all, Dumbo and Louise has some of my favorite jokes that I've ever seen. Like, I just don't think, you know, the, the, to me it was like, it, it was more, I thought he was perfect. And I thought, don't worry about the funny. We'll worry about the funny. You know, and if it's not funny, the thing is, if the jokes don't work, the movie's still going to work. Yeah. But if everything else works, the movie's going to, you know, like all the stuff that Ridley's going to do. So if the, if the jokes don't work, we'll cut some jokes. Like you learn not to be precious about jokes because nothing, nothing's worse than a bad joke you wrote, right? <laughs> like having to watch a joke that you wrote bomb really hurts. And so you're, it's really painful because you know it's your fault. And so you're, you're just like, let's not be precious about this. And then Ridley, look, he got it. And he, he read it that, and we sent it to him, and he said yes the same night. And he said, I don't, we're not changing a word of the comedy. He's like, we're not changing a word. That's why I want to do this. And then you just went, okay, it's going to be fine. And, you know, I, I, it's been the greatest creative partnership of my career in, in the sense of writer, director working together because I love him so much. And I think part of that is because I had directed, you learned, the one thing we used to sort of cynically say on writing staffs, we, we would always say, if a director doesn't see it, he, he will make it not happen. Like, and we sort of said it as a passive aggressive thing. Like, oh, you know, he's going to make, he says that scene sucks. That scene doesn't suck, but he's going to make it suck, right? Be, just to prove himself right. That's what you would think is the truth. Then I directed and realized what we were saying was true. If a director doesn't see it, it's not going to work. But it's not, it's not because he's being passive aggressive. It's because it's so hard to convince a crew of 300 people to do what you want, even when you see it. Even when you see everything and how exactly in your head, every detail, it's still really hard to communicate that to 300 people. And, and so when you don't see it, it's impossible. And it, it'll just never happen. And so with The Martian, there was a couple of scenes that I, stuff, you know, that I really loved in the book. And day one of the production meeting, Ridley's like, I don't get this. And I said, yes, sir, it's cut. Like, and, and, then, and, then when, and then when I would push back, he would listen because he knew... I wasn't just being precious about this. That's the other thing. It's hard. As a writer, it's hard to know when to be precious and when to not. And you just have to sort of feel it your way through it. That's pushing the bill through Congress. It's, 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 Congress. it's figuring out like, what things you're willing to, to get up in order to make that thing yeah. happen. Uh, I'm not going to even try to answer the question because he answered my directing question so much better than I will. Uh, guys, thank you all very, thank very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. For Drew Goddard, thank you very much for tonight. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs>